Hey everybody, welcome back to Article Club. I'm Mark, and we are a community of thoughtful readers, and we discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. This month is Reader's Choice Month, and we've been focusing on Nicholas Casey's piece in the New York Times Magazine entitled, My Father Vanished When I Was Seven, The Mystery Made Me Who I Am. It's a great piece, and I look forward to discussing it with many of you this Sunday. But before then, I'm happy to share with you an interview that Article Clubber Lori and I did with Mr. Casey a few weeks back. We reached him in Spain, where he's a bureau chief, and he was about ready to travel off to Morocco to do some reporting, but he was generous to spend time with both of us. So I hope that you like this interview, and here it is. Nicholas Casey, thank you so much for being on Article Club. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Your article from the New York Times Magazine is amazing, and everybody at Article Club wants to um, talk to you about it. Um, but we do have one person, Lori Dietz here, who actually nominated the article for us to all read. It's the first Reader's Choice Month. We have her actually here with me to ask you some questions. Thank you. Welcome, Nick. I just so loved your article. So to begin, how did this piece originate? What was the moment that you knew you needed to write about your journey and finding your father? Yeah, well, I, I wrote about finding my dad not immediately after I found him. I had been thinking about doing this piece even since before I, I, I met him, actually. It's been, it's been years. I wanted to write about just what it was like to have these like vague ideas of, of who my dad was based off of stories that had been told about him. And then based off of, you know, my own memories of, of him when I was a little kid, but I, I kind of felt like I was missing kind of the last piece in the story, which was, was finding him, but I didn't know how I was ever going to. And then I, I finally did a few years ago and I had originally talked to the magazine about doing a piece about it. Not long afterward, but I never did. And I think that was in part because I felt like I was just getting to know him. I didn't know exactly what I needed to say. And then that kind of, I'd, I'd written a proposal to do a story on this. And then that kind of sat there for a while, a few years. And then a friend of mine uh, named Wahini started to work at the New York Times, one I'd actually known since I was in college and had known this story too, from when I didn't know my dad. And, and I was just talking to her. Um, about stuff and how it was working at the Times Magazine. And I'd mentioned this and she said, you, you, you got to write this. You got to write this story. It's been, it's been several years since you've met him. You've got the material for it. And yeah, I said, okay, let's, let's give this uh, a shot. And, and I did, I, I felt like enough time had gone by that I could at least get a draft down of, of how this kind of felt at this point. So yeah, it was, it was that it was really through a friend of mine who's also working at the Times that kind of looked at the story and said, look, you can't sit on this forever. You, you got to do something here. So that, that was really the origin of it. So what was that process like for you in moving from telling other people's stories to telling your own story? Yeah, I, I thought about that a lot when I was, I was writing. Also because you, you put a lot of trust into someone when you talk to a journalist, when you not only kind of open up to them, but also trust them to write and, and basically take control of, of your story. And in many ways, what I did was a lot easier than what I asked people to do on a daily basis at the New York Times, because I was revealing a lot about myself, but I also had a lot of control over 
over the writing of it. I was the writer. I had total control over it. That said, I really did feel that there wasn't anything in this process that I could really hold back on personally. My own feelings about what was going on, things that happened that I might not have necessarily been so proud of, or things that happened, you know, with my dad that he wasn't so proud of. Simply because, like, I have I asked this out of so many people in the past that I've interviewed that uh, I was trying to show as much as I possibly could about what happened during that time. So yeah, it was really kind of like turning the microscope onto myself. But I'll still say it was a bit easier and is a bit easier when you are your own journalist than if you are kind of trusting stranger to do that. And it really makes you appreciate the immense trust that that people put into journalists. That's really, really interesting that you actually found it easier just because, you know, as a reader, it just seems like you are really sharing very vulnerably your story. But I appreciate how you say that, like, you have more control, you know, about where to put stuff, what to put. And we notice that right from the beginning, you know, like right from the beginning of your piece, you are telling us some of your early memories of your dad. And they're very complex right from the beginning. Can you say a little bit more about the decisions right at the beginning of the piece with, with how you shared those memories? Yeah, well, when I write an article, it's usually chronological. That's the easiest way to tell a story is from beginning to end. At least in the newspaper business, it's different for magazines. But I did feel that because that was the way that I've always been accustomed to telling a story in the most straightforward fashion that the way it made sense to tell the story of my dad wasn't like kind of at this moment that I met him and then going back to the beginning, but just really kind of what my first memories of him were. And I think why those were important was because there were a lot of people who have never met their dad. And it's different for me because I actually did meet him. It's, I just didn't really know him. Like the time that I knew him, I was so young and a big part of this piece is about kind of what the difference is between someone that you remember from the past many years ago when you're a child and then that person that you meet when you're an adult. And, you know, this happens with often extended family members or like a friend of your mom's that you meet when you're a child and when, you know, later you might see them again when you're grown up. But for me, this was pretty impactful because it was my own father that I'm basically comparing against memories, which were when I was a kid and he just looked completely larger than life. So yeah, that was the only place for me it made sense to start was with just kind of the first memories of, of him on the other end of the phone line with, with my mom when he would just suddenly appear out of nowhere and had just come from the sea. He'd worked as a sailor. This is where he was always coming from. And just how kind of magical these moments felt to me when I was a kid. Yeah, you said they're magical. It feels like Christmas. But like right after that, it, it's not all happy and easy. You talk a little bit about how there were also moments of fear and also some anger coming from him as well. And it seems like right from those memories, also like ideas of what it means to be a masculine or be a man. And it seems like, especially as a young kid, that there were different feelings that you had about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that I kind of experienced a lot of the um, same emotions that many people had with their fathers from, you know, being very excited at their presence to being very scared of a man who's just much larger and older than you. But as opposed to having those experiences over the course of years, these were spread out over a number of years, but really themselves probably less than 25 days that I ever spent with him. So 
you know, all, all of the emotions, the full range of them from seeing kind of interactions with my mom and my dad, when they got along together, when they seemed romantic together, when they seemed to be fighting, when I was in conflict with my dad, when I was very excited to see him, when I was terrified of him, all of those things were compressed into just probably three weeks total that took place over, over seven years of my life. And it was a big mix of emotions and, and things. And then it was over. And then I, I really didn't think of, of it all until in, in one place, until I, I wrote this article, although certainly aspects of, of this relationship I've had with my dad have come in and out of my life as I, as I've grown up, especially as his fatherhood to me was shaped almost entirely by his absence more than, than his presence. Yeah. And the whole piece is about that and your journey about that. The headline uses the term vanished. And we all know that that writers don't necessarily um, write the headlines. And then you and your piece use the word abandoned. And obviously you have a lot of different feelings about it and you take the piece to explore them. Are you okay also with the vanished language in the headline? Well, I, I actually did write the headline. That's, that's uh, as you, you know, that, that's not always a decision of the writers, but I actually like that the writer doesn't write the headline. I think the headline is kind of a decision of the editors in terms of what they see in the piece. And they often bring kind of a perspective that you might not necessarily have as the person that wrote it. And I think there's a lot of words to describe what happened. Vanished is one of them. I think vanished is what it looked like from the pers my perspective when I was seven, um, because he'd gone. When he appeared again, I realized that I had been abandoned by him. I, I didn't know where he'd gone. He might've, for all I knew, sank at the bottom of the ocean on a cargo ship that he was probably in jail and had probably died there. But it turned out it was, it was something different. It turned out he, he'd just been gone. And all I needed to do was figure out where he was. That became an extremely complicated journey that, you know, no matter how much I tried initially to resolve the question, like it, it just, if anything, it was a question of technology and chance and other things and DNA testing that led to that path finally clearing itself out and me being able to go down. But yeah, in terms of the, the language there, it's a combination of things. When I was younger, it seemed that he'd banished. When I was older, I realized that he'd, he'd abandoned me. And all those things were true at their sort of different times in, in my life. I want to jump in to a point at the end where you're describing the car ride with your dad and you're listening to music, realizing you had the shared love of classical music. And then you put in the recording that he doesn't know who the composer is, right? It comes to find out it's you, but says that clearly whoever wrote this has a melancholy soul. Do you agree with your dad's characterization that the composer of that piece has a melancholy soul? And, and if so, how you see that threaded in those earlier experiences when you were writing the piece? Yeah, I think I, there's a lot of aspects to me that are there in the piece, but I think he's right in the end. And I think, you know, melancholy might be the, the right word for kind of my approach to my relationship with, with him. I wish there could have been more of a relationship when I was younger, but I kind of also understand that, that this is just, you know, how, how life was too. I, I think definitely the, the word melancholy comes up very often in the middle of, of, of the piece too, when, you know, during this time where I just didn't know where he was, and I was just feeling very kind of sad about not really understanding 
by extension, who I was. You know, my, my dad's also a man of very quick judgments, and I think he he he, he was able to make a, a very lucky guess. But I, I think he was right, and I think in some ways there's a way that 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 parents can know their children, and I, I don't know exactly whether this is based off of nature or nurture. Certainly, with my dad, there there wasn't a lot of nurture there, but he is my father, and you know, as kind of at the end of the piece kind of gets into, especially around the fact that we had these similar interests in music, one of the ideas that finding my dad really has challenged for me is this notion that it is all nurture. I've always kind of held on to this notion that I am the person I decided to be through the many decisions that I've made throughout the course of my life. And to to run into him and to see the similarities um, between this kind of 81-year-old man now and myself, who barely has met him, has not had enough time to you know, be shaped by him. As I said, like it was his absence, which was shaping me, if anything, more than his presence. And, and to see these things that we did have in common has really made me wonder how much genetics, how much just parents have an effect on, on their, their children's personalities just by giving birth to them. One area of commonality that you seem to share and perhaps also share with your mom is Wanderlust. What I love about that word and concept and what I'd love to hear you talk more about is the paradox in wanderlust, because it's so much about searching and seeking and exploring as a way to build connection, but to also kind of break connection as you move to the next place. It's something I've, I've thought a lot about, and especially as I'm kind of thinking about writing uh, a book uh, about this period of my life, that this, this is going to be one of the, the huge themes, right? Not just about my, my father, but also my mother's life as well. And, you know, one thing that I can see is the thread that goes between kind of, you know, father, mother, and son is that these are three people uh, who can't stay put anywhere, who've constantly moved. And I think that we have this romantic idea of what it means to kind of go out and see the world and be able to have all these experiences and be able to, you know, be an adventurer. And we've always kind of held those sorts of figures like high in regard. But I think one of the things that we've seen, the three of us, my father, myself, and, and my mom, is, is that there is like, there's a dark side to all of that as well. It involves, you know, my father basically leaving us. It's involved my mom, I think, kind of giving up a, a, a different life, which, which she wanted to have and, and had begun for herself so she could have uh, a son and, and, and raise, which was a tremendous sacrifice because you cannot have uh, a kid when you are working. My, my father did that and, and that didn't work out well as a dad. And my mom, you know, had to give that up. So, so yeah, so I think that fundamentally though, this thing that we call wanderlust isn't, isn't something that you have a choice about or not. I mean, this is, this is something that I think runs through all three of us and for better or worse, um, it's meant that we have constantly uprooted ourselves, left people that we knew, friends, even family members, and gone to different places, not just out of curiosity for the rest of the world, but actually kind of a more, more fundamental need to keep to keep moving. Uh, this is what I do for a living. I'm a foreign correspondent, which means that every three or four years, I pick up and move and start out to a completely different place. And in many of the countries that I've gone to, they just haven't understood this, like especially regions like Latin America, countries like Colombia and, and Mexico, where people are very much centered around their, their family and, and their friends. Don't understand how I could live so far away from them. And yet I, I kind of explain that 
I, I can't, it's sometimes, you know, parts of me understand like how I could live in, in any other way, because this is still what, what makes me, what makes me happy. Yeah. Thank you for that. When Lori and I were talking, we were talking about how the romanticness of this piece is just throughout. So uh, we really appreciate that as well. If you're moving around too, there's the question of like what home is then for you? What is home for you or belonging or connection? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a question I've tried to ask and answer for, for myself over the years. I, yeah, I definitely think that I have a very different sense of, of home and it, it often has to do with, you know, feeling kind of in a good place in my life, having the right people around me, people that I, I care about are, are nearby. It's not, it's not usually a, a house. It, it's more of kind of an, an idea. And I, I remember I, I read this biography of, of, of Pope Francis after he was elected Pope. The Jesuits are this order of Catholics that, that move around a lot. They're kind of like sailors or foreign correspondents. They get posted from place to place trying to evangelize. And it was a story of like a 19th century Jesuit, I think that was in, in China and, and someone in China, I think had asked him like, what sorts of houses do Jesuits live in? And the Jesuit said, well, we live in lots of different kinds of houses, but we really only feel at home when we're moving. I, I felt like a certain resonance with, with that kind of idea, which is that I, I do feel at home uh, when I'm on the move. And that's, that's a very different sense of home. It's hard to describe why it is or what you feel. But I do feel, I think the, the way others feel when they're homesick, when I'm staying put, and I feel the reverse of that when, when I'm traveling, uh, when I've seen the amount of travel that like my mom, me and, and my dad want, is, is this something that we taught each other or is this just something that we're passing down to each other? And this, yeah, this does tie in directly to the idea of like what's home and whether home is when you're moving or what home is when you're staying put. And we wanted to ask about identity too, genetic or not, especially like when you are at, like your mom asked you to take the DNA test. Was that easy to say yes to? Well, I, I didn't initially take the test and it was because this was, you know, this was a few years ago. I had just sort of started to become a, a fad when I, I took them and I was under the impression that I was going to get a map only of, you know, where my ancestors were from. And I kind of knew that already. And the truth was when she gave me the test, you know, one of the things that has constantly haunted my mom and me is, is my own frustration and sometimes even anger that she didn't do more when I was young to figure out who my dad was. So I would be able to find him when I could like get his full name, get his rate of birth, try to get some relatives that he lives, you know, that, that, that raised him. So I could try to be in touch with them if I needed to find them. So when she gave me the test, it really almost felt like she was saying, I'm sorry, here it is. But, but I, I was still a little bit, you know, not ready to, to say, all right, this is, this is all you can give me as a test to tell me that like my, my dad's ancestors were from Africa. Now, what it turned out was this test unbeknownst to either of us was, was going to reveal who my dad was because it was going to show me someone that was related to him. And I was going to be able to talk to that person. And within just like a few hours, be on the phone with him. But yeah, it wasn't easy to take that to begin with because it was, it was getting to the heart of, of this, this problem between my mom and me, which was at times, you know, both her and him being children of the 1960s, this time where people didn't have to get married when people had children when there was like free love and lots of sex and drugs everywhere. I, I was always frustrated by the fact that she seemed to take this all so casually. And, and even just giving a DNA test seemed to be doing that too. So it was a while before I took it. But I realized that okay, the joke was on me in many ways. This was actually the key that she was giving to figure out 
who he was. So I'm, I'm very glad that I did take it. But there are moments throughout the piece where, where you could ask your dad, why did you abandon me? But you're like, you know, just kind of let that go. In some ways, this article is that confrontation with your parents. And have they read it? Have there been ensuing conversations after writing and publishing it? Yeah, they, they both read it right after it, it came out. And it's really a, a good question to ask because that's kind of one of the things that is in the background of the piece. Like, you know, I did write this for a public audience for everyone to read, but I also did write it for like a very specific person and directed at one person in particular, which was my dad. I realized that this was uh, one way that I would be able to get everything down in a way that I very much controlled that he needed to know everything that had happened, many conversations that we hadn't had, many ones that we really couldn't have because he, you know, maybe changed the subject or, or, you know, things would get a little bit awkward, but, you know, and there are also like very few people that have got the luxury of being able to direct a statement to their dad through the New York Times, but this was just a, you know, a confluence of extraordinary circumstances here. I didn't know how he was going to react. Um, I didn't know how my mom was going to react. I was a little less concerned about how my mom was going to react because it's, you know, the, the piece wasn't so explicitly about her. It was very much about him and it wasn't about necessarily something that he'd done that he was very proud of, but he, he, he really loved it. I think he, 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 he just called kind of crying. I think he, he could see that that despite everything that had happened and despite my frustration and anger that some of it comes out in, in the article at times that I wouldn't have written something like that if I didn't love him and didn't want to have a connection with him. This was not a way of being able to cut him out of my life, but really a way of, of in some ways putting him on a pedestal, maybe a pedestal, you know, someone doesn't deserve when they abandon their son, but he is my dad. So he's going to be on that pedestal no matter what. And uh, I, I think through writing that, that, that really did bring us together in a way that we wouldn't have had if, if I hadn't been able to write. The love comes out so loud and clear, especially at the ending. And we wanted to ask you about how you ended the piece. So first, you know, you, you talk about how you weren't just searching for him, but you were him. And there's all of these scenes at the end that are just really, really endearing from the Jack in the Box scene where he says, get on in kid, the pastrami and the shrimp and all these like details and that you wanted to impress your dad. And so could you talk a little bit about how did you write that? How did you know that was the ending? How did you know it was the different parts of it? And then finally, why did you end with both of you looking out in the sea? Well, the ending went through a lot of drafts. There was an ending that I had originally written, which actually just ended at the point that I got to see him in LA during Thanksgiving for the first time. And, and part of my first instinct was just to kind of end the story there, that it started with him being gone. And then the last scene would just be me talking to him for the first time and just just leaving the rest, you know, un, unwritten. But, you know, Wahini really pushed me to say like, look, we, we need, we need more than that. We need to kind of get into kind of what it was, you know, you can't end that there. There's this just too many questions. So yeah, so I did keep writing. And I think a lot of, of material that I hadn't really understood myself kind of came out in that process of trying to sort of dig through some of the interactions that we'd had afterward, the times that we'd seen each other, telephone conversations, how I felt about 
the conversations, not necessarily wanting to pick up the phone all the time when he called. And I, I went out actually to see him again when we took the photos for the piece. And, and that's actually where the last part of the article happened a month before we even published it. We were just the stage where we were just doing a photo shoot for it. And I just kept, kind of kept adding to it. So yeah, it's interesting that you did get the sense that like there, there was had this moment where it was ending, but then it was also like, there's just another thing that happened and another thing that happened because that's just like how we, we wrote it as well. Now, the reason to end at the sea, I think it just made sense uh, because it kind of begins there too. In California, kind of like trying to wait for him at the ocean or in that case at a port, which was on the bay, but the water. But it also wasn't necessarily contrived because this is where he likes to go. It just like, this is where he wants to take people to. In, in many ways, he has a very cinematic lifestyle because he just lives that way. And that's just his first instinct. So, you know, even now... And this wasn't in, in the article, but after the article came out, he was able to get a job being on a cargo ship that's been retired and it's been changed into a museum and it's, it's in the same port where he used to sail out of, and it's just docked there and, and he's able to live there and, and be the, basically the security guard watching over the place. I mean, this is, this, I mean, you can't make up like he's this retired sailor who lives on a retired ship that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and yet this is, like, as I said, like, it's just, that's just his instinct in terms of living. He, he makes a great story. What, what can I say? He, he, he's very easy to write about the magazine article because he practically organizes his life's chapters. That's great, Nick. Thank you. It was wonderful to talk to you too. So, and I'm really happy that you're, you're reading the article in your group and that you picked it. Thanks for nominating it. It really means a lot to me. Yeah, Nick, thank you so much for doing this, for saying yes, for writing this piece, for your generosity. We're so appreciative and grateful um, that you said yes to Article Club. So thank you so much. Okay, thanks so much. And we're back. And before I go, I just want to say one more thank you to Mr. Casey for being so generous and answering our questions. Lori and I are very grateful. And thank you, too, dear listeners, for being part of Article Club and being part of our reading community. It's pretty amazing. I was thinking the other day that we are in our 22nd month reading our 22nd article with our 22nd author. It's obviously something that I love to do, but this whole thing is made infinitely better because of you and because of our reading community. Have a great week.